This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 153 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Zuber. Day six. The doves are still crying in Minneapolis. Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Scott Hanselman. Hey, hey, hey. Do you want to quickly introduce yourself? I'm Scott Hanselman. That was quick. <laughs> no no introduction next. <laughs> no, no. I'm a developer, and I've been blogging for 15 years, and I've got a couple of podcasts as well. People can go out and, and Google for Scott, and they will find the toilet paper people, Scott Toilet Paper, and they can scroll down, and I'm below the toilet paper people. <laughs> I'm in an epic battle right That's now with good. Scott Toilet Tissue, so anything you can do to help me with that would be appreciated. Nice. All the links in the show notes, that'll, that'll put you over the top. Yeah, just make sure around. that anytime, my na- anytime the name Scott appears, you need to link it to my blog, and that will help me defeat Scott Tissue. <laughs> you know, I just Googled Scott, and Scott Toilet Paper is not the first hit for me. No, it's Scott Some, Sports or yeah. it's Scott uh, Fly Rods. I go around and around with them. They're, they're fighting with me, and the Scott Toilet Paper people have been putting ads now at the top. Pretty obnoxious. Yeah, I've listened to a few episodes of Hansel Minutes, and I've heard you on other podcasts. And it's yeah, always, I do, uh, it's I always... do This Developer's Life, and uh, Hansel Minutes has been going on now for 500 and something episodes. Yeah, a lot of great stuff there. I've, I've really enjoyed what I've listened to. I do kind of pick and choose, though, I'll admit that. Yeah, 524 episodes over the last 10-plus years. Wow. So uh, the topic for today is using mobile technology to help manage diabetes. I'm really curious. So I'm type 2 diabetic. Uh, I think before the call, we kind of went around the horn and, you know, we, we all either know people or live with people that have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. I, I'm curious, though, for me as a type 2 diabetic, mostly what I'm doing is I check my blood sugar and then I just make sure I eat right and exercise periodically. But I understand that for type 1 people, they monitor things much more closely and have things like insulin pumps and stuff like that that they have to deal with. And it's something that I'm not as familiar with. So I'm wondering, what aspects of this have you been tackling with your... I I don't know if it's a hobby project or something that uh, somebody's paying you to work on or what? No, no. So tackling those things one at a time. Uh, Yeah, type 1 and type 2 are are very, very different. They are similar only in that there's sugar and food and diet. Yeah, and you know, related. There are those that argue that they should be named something else because they're so fundamentally different. Type one diabetics produce no insulin. I have to get all my insulin externally, uh, and I have a pump that delivers it into me. Uh, I could also take shots if I felt like it. Type twos are either resistant to their own insulin or are perhaps not producing enough for a variety of reasons. Uh, some genetics, some lifestyle, but arguably many type twos can, you know, eat right and work out and, you know, maybe take a pill. And, and for the most part, it can be managed. Uh, you're, if you die with type two, it, you're going to die over a long period of time. You're not going to just drop. Type one, you can have a low blood sugar. 
and go unconscious or, or you can have a high blood sugar for many, many months and lose your kidneys and your feet and your eyes and all that kind of gross stuff. It's definitely a yucky, a yucky way to die. So type 1s tend to manage it a little more tightly. And by management, I mean they're paying attention to their altimeter and their steering and their fuel and all of the things one would have to manage when you're like flying in an airplane. We are managing that stuff multiple times a day. Like even in the, even in the last 10 minutes as we've been sitting here, I've been dealing with a little bit of a high blood sugar. I'm at 150 right now and it's floating up a little bit and I don't like it. So I've been trying to deal with that. But at the same time, I don't want to have a low blood sugar as I'm sitting here with y'all. So I don't want to take too much. So I'm, I'm doing a little bit of a dance. And you can hear that beep just then. That was my insulin pump as I gave myself a unit and a half of insulin to kind of tap that down. So I made a small altitude adjustment just as we're, as we're speaking here. That is something that we do 30, 40 times a day. That's interesting. I'd like to step back a little because, of course, this is something people have been dealing with for a long time. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about a pump, and you can hear beeps and clicks. I'm sure that wasn't happening 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So, so 20 years ago, changed? yeah, 20 years ago, I was uh, using needles and I was pricking my finger and I was uh, checking my blood sugar, the the, the whole blood with a uh, glucose meter that was portable, and I would prick my finger and I would put it on a piece of paper, and the paper would turn a color of blue and the deeper blue meant that I had more sugar in my blood. And then there was a little sensor that would look at that color of blue and the darker the blue, the more sugar was in my system. And it would give me a very, very, very rough idea. 20 years before that, people would go into the bathroom and pee on a stick and they would look at the stick and they'd say, wow, that's a really bright orange. That must mean I have a lot of sugar in my system. And it was extremely inaccurate. And rather than using disposable needles, they used one or two real needles that they would then boil to sterilize. Uh, today, we use reconstituted recombinant DNA human insulin before they would use insulin that was pulled out of beef or pigs. So yeah, things have come a long way. I have a, a little pager. It looks like a little pager with a tube, and that prevents me from having to take multiple shots a day. And then also when I check my blood sugar with my finger, it takes five seconds instead of a minute. And I also have a thing called a continuous glucose meter or continuous uh, CGM, which is plugged into my arm right now. It can be plugged into anything. And it's a battery and it has Bluetooth and it talks to my phone and it tells me and, uh, and whoever else I want my, uh, my blood sugar. So like, for example, right here, as we are sitting here, it just said high glucose alert at 150. And then see there it says sensor session ends at 5 o'clock. So it's telling me that after you know my three or four days that I've had this sensor in is going to end at five o'clock today, and then I have to go and unplug it and plug a new one in. And I've got a chart here that shows my blood sugar over time, and it's just a little bit higher than I want it to be. It's not bad, but it's just not making me happy. So I'm making some small adjustments. Typically, though, if you're in the old days, you would make much more gross adjustments, and you'd do it over a longer period of time. And uh, you would spend hours not knowing what your blood sugar was, just kind of flying in the clouds without really being being clear. You could be 200, you could be 100, you don't really know. Yeah, that's so, kind of how I fly with my blood sugar as I monitor it. Yeah, I, I just have a glucose meter. I don't have a continuous uh, check on it. And so I'll prick my finger, put it into the glucose meter, and it tells me what my blood right. sugar is. And then... You know, sometime later on in the day, if I'm feeling low energy or I feel like my blood sugar's high, because depending on how that works, I, I can generally feel where I'm at. I couldn't put a number on it, but I can so, tell you it's higher than normal or not. So people, I'm gonna, so I'm gonna talk about that for a second. So people say that I've been diabetic for 25 years. People say that they can feel when they're high. 
I know that I can feel that something's wrong. That's probably a better way of putting it. But I can't it. tell you if I'm 200 right now or 150. These are numbers that yeah. people, everyone in the U.S., we have one model uh, milligrams per deciliter of blood, MGDL, and overseas they use MMOL over liters. But additionally, it bothers me uh, as a diabetic when I hear other diabetics, type 2 or otherwise, say that, uh, you know, I don't really know what my blood sugar is right now. That just bugs me. It might be a control freak thing. It might be because I'm old. It might be because I've been doing this for a very long time. But now... I desperately want to know what your blood sugar is, Charles, because now we need to take action, right? Uh-huh. So what happens is an hour goes by, that's fine, two or three hours. But if you haven't checked your blood sugar in four hours, you could be marinating. That's true. In your own sugar, which then causes all sorts of untold damage. So it makes me worry about stuff. So I would encourage everyone who can afford it, because uh, it's about a dollar every time you check your blood sugar with a, few, with a prick, yes. to check their blood sugar at least every four hours regardless of type 1 or type 2, if you can afford it. I would also encourage diabetics who know other diabetics, and I bet that uh, Jane would agree with me, is that we have test strips in the closets that we haven't used yet. So while insurance companies have issues and we can have a whole discussion about the healthcare system, you probably have diabetic friends that have extra test strips that will give them to you. I have extra test strips that if there's a neighbor who needs them, I'll give them a couple hundred if I find that they're not checking their blood sugar. So we as a community can get together and not cause medical waste by giving some of these things away. Now, I'm not a doctor and that's not legal, but you know, if you're using the same meter as I'm using, I'll give you some of my strips. Huh. For real. Yeah, and you're right. I should be checking it more often. There's not really a good reason why I don't, to be perfectly honest. It's complacency. Yeah. Because, and this is the thing that's so nasty about diabetes, is that let's say, you know, I don't know whether your diabetes is well controlled or not. And here's the deal. Even if they give you a blood test, you don't know if your diabetes is well controlled or not. Let's say they give you a blood test and says, yeah, you're doing great, Charles. Good job. And then you have a stroke tomorrow. (laughs) They're like, well, guess it wasn't as well controlled as we thought. Yeah. Right? Or talk to me in 20 years. Let's see if Scott and Charles still have their feet. Yep. And oh. then go back to 2016 and go, man, remember that day that we had that podcast? I guess his blood sugar was bad, right? It's one of those things where it's such an insidious thing. I don't even know if I'm doing a good job yet. Yeah. Like I, I'm still vertical, but uh-huh. I don't know. Well, and to your point that, you know, I can feel that something is wrong. Most of the time I feel fine whether or not something is wrong. But on occasion, I feel like, okay, I feel my blood sugar rising or I feel that something is getting worse. And when it's super low, I can definitely tell that that's the case. Yeah, so low is easy. Low is like driving a car with an empty fuel tank. You can almost feel the crud at the bottom of the uh, gas tank starting to kind of get kicked up, and you feel the bubbles or the air in the tubing, and you're just like, I'm not getting enough power to my brain. Yeah. But like right now, I don't know what's going on. I kind of like feel something wrong in my mouth, and I feel like there's just a little bit too much sugar behind my eyes. You know what I mean? Just a sense of, you know what I mean? It's like something ain't right. So, and again, I'm only at 150. But I like to run at 100, so I, I know it's wrong. And as we're sitting here, it's just creeping up. Now it just went to 161. The goal is to be under 120, and some people would be more draconian and would say to stay under 100 because the idea is that I'm trying to simulate being a normal non-diabetic, right? So what would be a normal range for someone without diabetes? Uh, someone without diabetes fasting would probably be 80 milligrams of glucose per deciliter of blood. And you might have a pizza, and if you ever got up past 150 and stayed there, that would be unusual. I've seen non-diabetics go to 150 for 10, 15 minutes, and then their bodies go, hey, that was a big old pizza, and then you, you get insulin. And the, the trick is, and the big, the big insidious aspect of things is that you produce insulin from the inside your body. 
and you release that inside your body and it happens instantly. So then your blood sugar doesn't stay up. I don't have a way to get it into me correctly, right? I can't really inject it into my veins. So I have to inject it into the fat, which causes it then to absorb slowly. So if I'm taking, you know, when I took that insulin right there, I got to wait for an hour before it does anything. So you're constantly chasing your tail and chasing time. It's like you move, move a joystick and then the Mars lander moves 15 minutes later and then you wait to see if it worked. It's this constant time dilation uh, frustration, which is, which is why when you explain this stuff to non-diabetics and they go, well, why don't they just do this? Why don't they just do that? Well, there's time dilation. You know, when I look at my blood sugar and my finger, that's the past. It's 30 minutes ago or 15 minutes ago. If I take insulin, it's an hour, it happens from an hour from now. What if I have to go for a jog? What if there's an emergency? What if I have to take off running right now? I'm probably going to have a low blood sugar. What about lunch? How long do I have to do this podcast? You know, I got to, you know, go have lunch with my wife in half an hour. Should I be taking insulin in, t- in anticipation of lunch? What if the place I go for lunch is closed? Then I'm going to die in the parking lot. Like, oh, sandwiches. You know, <laughs> there's so many variables and it's really hard to close the loop. I know this is something though that's been worked on. So you, you just described some of the problems that make it so that even with the best we have right now, somebody with especially type one diabetes can't really regulate things the way somebody that's not diabetic can. But there's work on, I've heard the term closed loop system. So where you've got a, as I understand it, you've got a continuous glucose monitor monitoring your blood sugar and it directly controls a pump that's supplying insulin. So that's the, the holy grail. That's the goal is the closed loop system. The, the, the don't do anything and you'll be fine system. The open loop is what I have right now. And the, I am the one that closes it. So I look at my sensor or I check my blood sugar. It just went from 157 to 161. So it's climbing ever so gently, but I'm concerned about it. Now I look at my pump. These two things do not talk to each other. One is read only and one is write only. And I look at my pump and it says I have five units active. That means that I've given myself five units over the last few hours and it has yet to be absorbed because there's a what they call a decay curve. If I give myself 10 units of insulin, the first hour I'll get five of that and then an hour after that I'll get a unit or two and an hour after that I'll get a unit or two and it kind of the curve kind of goes off. So if I take 10 units of insulin right now, two, three hours from now, there's still a little bit in you know, on board, kind of waiting to be absorbed by the system. Not to mention, is it good insulin? Has it been out of the fridge too long? Did I get a good place to inject it in myself? Is it bleeding? Or is there a kink in the cable, you know, in the tubing? All those different things that are, you know, similar to mechanical things that can go wrong. But the loop is me going, well, I got, let me see here, I got five units pending. I'm at 161. It says that it's mostly flat. Will I spike up or will I crash? But I'm also knowing that we're going to be done in a half an hour and I'm going to go have lunch. So I'm giving myself more insulin than I need in anticipation of eating in the next 30 minutes because I don't want to enter lunch high because then I'll just continue going higher. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's a lot of decision points all happening within a few seconds. The closed loop system would look at that 161 that just became 166. So I am floating up. I feel kind of like a balloon as we're sitting here. It would look at that 166 and say, I'm going to need to crank him up a little bit. So it's going to kind of turn the background volume up. It's not going to deliver insulin to me as it's going to keep the background amount and then raise it up a bit, like turning up white noise. So I'm going to give myself a little bit more. 
this is, again, is what I'm doing here. People may be listening and going, wow, he's given himself insulin three times. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Everyone's different. I make little tiny changes all day, a unit here, a unit there. Other people might take a shot a day or two shots a day. Everyone's different. But I believe as when you're driving a car, you're trying to stay in the lines, you're not going to make dramatic turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right to go straight. You make constant little tiny movements on the steering wheel to stay within the lines. Does that make sense? So I'm doing that myself. And for the most part, my blood is is at non-diabetic levels. If you look at my, what's called my hemoglobin A1C, uh, which is the measurement of your blood sugar over three months, it's how you're doing over the last quarter of a year. Mine is uh, 5.5. Uh, normal di- non-diabetics are between four and six. And diabetics are asked to stay below seven. That's to prevent long-term problems. So I'm fine. So while what I'm doing is a little bit weird with all the checking and stuff, it works for me. And if whatever you do works for you, whoever's listening, then, you know, keep it up. Yeah, I'll tell you, I do the two shots per day. But I'm really curious about being a little bit more fine-tuned with a lot of it. Did you check your blood sugar? No, I didn't. My monitor's in the other room. I am curious, though. First of all, the thing you have on your arm, mm-hmm. what is it's, that? I'm, I'm really curious to see. So it's called a, it's called a CGM, and it's for the, the one I'm using is from a company called Dexcom, D-E-X-C-O-M. There are many different CGMs, but the main ones are uh, either Dexcom or uh, Medtronic. And this particular one is a battery that has a metal cannula that is about an inch into my arm, and it's looking at the interstitial fluid that's running in my system, you know, in between the tissues. And it's putting a little bit of electricity in there and looking at the resistance of that and getting a sense of uh, a number. And then it guesses what your blood sugar is because I will check my actual blood sugar and I will draw a correlation between the interstitial fluid and the blood glucose. So it doesn't actually know my blood sugar, but it knows that there is a direct correlation between the sugar that's floating around in the interstitial fluid and whole blood sugar. What are the obstacles to having a closed-loop system that actually works? The companies that make the pumps and the sensors for the CGMs are pretty paranoid about safety, particularly around young people. And a number of years ago, someone was able to tell a pump to deliver insulin remotely, which was kind of funny because pumps could do that before. They literally had remote controls, like you can buy a remote control for your pump. But you know, if one could learn the serial number of a pump, one could cause that pump to deliver too much insulin remotely and then potentially assassinate somebody who is a diabetic if you could get within a certain number of feet of them. That it's almost said, similar in complexity to like a self-driving car. Like you could create a self-driving car that got itself around a track, but you wouldn't put it on a road because there's so many things that could go wrong. Well, but of course they are doing that, right? So like, you know, Tesla did it and interestingly did it without asking permission. But I think the difference between diabetes and self-driving cars is that people want self-driving cars and diabetics are too small of a constituency to insist that we do this. It's a multi-billion dollar business, you know, Mm -hmm. and for them to push the limits, like if there was an accident with a self-driving car tomorrow, there'd be someone in Congress the next day trying to explain this, and it would probably set self-driving cars back. You know what I mean? It would set, Tesla would be forced to shut off all of their self-driving cars and, you know, remotely tell them to stop, and we'd be, we'd have a big meeting about how self-driving cars kill people. If a company came out with a closed loop system and someone died, God forbid, to someone small, then it's going to ruin it for everybody. So the closed-loop system right now is very, very conservative. They're in clinical trials, and there is an open-source kind of closed-loop system called the Open APS, 
that is extremely technical and non-trivial to set up and also extremely conservative, but also makes the very clear point that it's not for kids. Uh, and if it is, you're on your own. And if it's for adults, you're on your own. And if you hurt yourself, you're on your own. And, you know, it's not a download a file and run it kind of a thing. It's an expression of a blueprint for a theoretical one. And then you would have to go and hunt down the pieces you want and build it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. They're, they're trying to, to protect people from themselves as well as make sure that they're in compliance with the FDA. Before the show started, you showed us a little bit of what you're working on. Can you tell us about that? So there's a woman named Dana Lewis and her husband, Scott Liebrand, along with uh, some innovators in the space like uh, Benjamin West, who have a thing called Open APS or the Open Artificial Pancreas System. It is not an artificial pancreas. But basically, you think about the problem. I've got a CGM. that's this little iPod looking thing with my blood sugar on it that knows my blood sugar right now plus or minus some amount, right? And then I've got a pump that I keep having to pull out of my pocket and tell it stuff. If I had all of this historical data from my blood sugar, and I can go back on this device 24 hours, but I can also go back months and months. I've got a MongoDB database with a tool called Night Scout with all this stuff. Could we write something that sits between the two, pulls the data from the CGM from one company, then tells the pump to make a subtle adjustment? So they have a system, they've got one built on an Intel Edison, and they have a model built on a Raspberry Pi. Right now I'm using a Raspberry Pi, and in this case we're using it as a tiny computer. So my blood sugar goes from the sensor on my arm over to my phone via Bluetooth, then up into the cloud and goes into a Mongo database. The Raspberry Pi pulls it from the cloud, brings it down locally, looks at the curve, thinks about what it knows about me, like how sensitive I am to insulin, how sensitive I am to food, you know, how I've been lately, how I'm, you know, the direction that I'm going, logarithmic trend lines, math, 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 then uses a USB adapter to speak RF, radio frequency, to the pump and make an adjustment. However, there are varying versions of pumps. There's the pump before the hacker poked around and made it ruined it for everybody, and then there's the pump afterwards. So these kinds of hacks only work on the old pumps that that are hard to find. It's still a useful thing even if you don't have one of the one of these pumps because it gives you charts and graphs and insight that you just can't get anywhere else. So you don't have to make a closed loop. You can make a darn near closed loop. You know what I mean? Where where you just need to acknowledge something. Or if you uh, just want sensor, you, you want the uh, ability to share your blood sugar, you can buy a Dexcom and without having to do any open source software or any tinkering, I can share this uh, my blood sugar with my wife and she can see my blood sugar remotely. So I was in Peru the day before yesterday and she was watching my blood sugar from down there. So she could text me and say, hey, is everything okay? I was like, yeah, you know, Peruvian food. And uh, it gives you a closeness and a, a sense of, sa of safety net, even though you're thousands of miles away. That's really interesting. I have quite a few family members that have type 1 diabetes. I don't have it myself. but So it's something that you know I've been close to and known about my whole life. And on several occasions, people that I know and love have had reactions when they were alone, either in the middle of the night or just out on their own. And nothing horrible has happened, but some things that could have been pretty scary. And so... Yeah, that's so those cool, things but... don't happen anymore with continuous glucose meters. It's very, very unlikely that you would be if you've got blood sugar every five minutes. You know, you wouldn't. You hopefully would not see it sneak up on you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But in the old days, I've been in you know a random hotel in Germany, feeling pretty horrible because I a low blood sugar snuck right up on me. 
Like there could be one sneaking up on Charles right now, right? Yes. And and I probably wouldn't feel it most of the time. I don't sometimes. And you I don't do. feel it until you until you're driving your car and then you hit the ditch and you're like, oh crap! Wow, I went right off the road. I wish it had those little bumps that go yep. ding, 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 that tell you when your car is going off the road. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, sometimes I'll eat something and I'll be like, oh wow, I can feel my blood sugar changing, or at least I think I can. But other times, you know, it's like, oh, why do I feel so awful? And then I check my blood sugar and it's like 200, and I'm like, oh, that's why, you know, or yeah. sometimes even higher. But most of the time, yeah. And so, I mean, I like the idea of the continuous glucose monitoring. I like the ideas behind uh, maybe having a closed loop system. With my diabetes being type 2 and insulin resistance, I have been told that I can mitigate a lot of it just by diet and exercise. And so that's kind of been my focus lately is getting it under control by doing more of those things. But it would be nice to have that feedback. So it's like, hey, when you eat a lunch like this... You know, it does these things to you. And when you eat a lunch like this, then you're, you know, you're not going to react to it the same way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm curious, you know, we've been talking about these open loop and closed loop systems. And obviously my sample rate really sucks. But I'm really curious if you could build a system that did everything for you, you know, so you have the closed loop system maybe, but let's say you could add things to it or, you know, make it more responsive or, you know, something like that. I mean, what would the ideal system look like? Oh, well, the ideal system, I think, would be implanted in your gut. It'd be refillable with a port like a car at a gas station, and I wouldn't ever think about it ever. I'd fill it up, and I'd drive it around. Right. That would be ideal. The reality is I, I have to change the sensor every couple of days, uh, you know, every three to six days, every three, you know, seven, eight, depends. But I, right now, it just warned me. And I also, I need to check my actual blood sugar. So, for example, my blood sugar is going up for some reason. And it just went up another nine, and that doesn't make any sense. So now I'm starting to suspect that maybe the tube is clogged because I, I have currently an inordinate amount of insulin in me for what was not a complicated breakfast. So something is wrong with my delivery system. And, uh, you know, even though the blood sugar is only 170 or so, I feel a little sweaty. So I'm not feeling super positive right now. I like to keep it real tight. So having it be uh, high right now is making me uncomfortable. In a perfect world, I would uh, never have to think about any of this stuff. But the problem is life happens. You know, food happens, running happens, sickness happens. A, a fever can make your blood sugar go high. Until we can make the delivery faster uh, where I can take a shot and have it immediately take action. Like right now, I've taken insulin three times while we've been sitting here. I still am not going to get this blood sugar down for another hour. But if I had the ability to have it happen internally in my body, then I could have my blood sugar down in five minutes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of systems you're using to you know, help close the loop. You talked about that, you know, you have to manage everything. One of the things we brought you on to, here to talk about was, you know, using the system. So right now you've got two devices that you use that are developed by some medical company who had to go through massive rounds of with the FDA to get something to you. And we're getting to the point where you can get information on your iPhone from some of these devices. I'd like to hear a little bit about kind of the state of where we're at, you know, what's working with these systems, what can be approved because our crowd is developers and we have our head in code. We don't really, mm -hmm. we don't have direct experience with what people go through when they're using systems like this because you know, mm -hmm. diabetes is not the only thing that we can solve with a mobile app talking to medical devices. Uh, can it's, you a help us out? it's a combination of the companies moving slow to be conservative and the FDA making it complicated to be conservative, right? Like the whole idea is you don't want to accidentally kill somebody with a software bug, right? So I appreciate that they're being conservative. 
but it's hard to get my data, my blood sugar off of this device. It is hard because I need to use their Bluetooth magic and I need to, or I need to use a USB cable. They don't publish their specifications. I have to decode the data. If there was simply an API, an open API that I could call to get my blood sugar, then cool. Problem solved, right? If there was a simple API, a secure API for me to talk to my uh, insulin pump, awesome. But about half the time that is spent on this kind of software is fighting with devices that do not want you to talk to them, to talk to them. And I can understand the perspective of the healthcare companies. They, they don't want you to hack onto your devices because they don't want you to hurt yourself. They guarantee a level of service and they don't want you to, um, to have any issues at all. And I respect that. But I feel like there should be a, uh, a difference between an automatic car and a, and a manual drive, right? There should be a way to switch the car into manual and say, click a button. I respect that I am off the beaten path right now, and I, I want to do it this way. So open APIs, that is the number one issue, I think, right now for hardware. Do you think there are opportunities right now, though, for developers? Most of our audience, of course, are, are iOS developers, where I think there's a lot of potential, but maybe yeah. they're, you know, what can people do now? Well, I mean, there's work happening in dozens of GitHub repositories. If you go and just search around for open APS, there are different work streams where people are talking about different things. So, for example, the logic that is happening in this Raspberry Pi, like think about what the Raspberry Pi does, right? It talks to the endpoint that gets me the blood sugar, and then it talks RF to this little device that talks to the pump. Well, arguably, this is just a for loop. Like we're using an entire Raspberry Pi for a for loop. You know, and it's not really a for loop, but you know what I mean? It's a Python app with some, some significant brains in it. But why couldn't that brains be in an iOS app running in the background? Then that could go and talk to the device remotely and then push to another thing that would then update the pump. Well, so that's a real problem with iOS. These uh, background processes in iOS get pushed out with memory pressure very often. So, for example, this blood sugar application that I use gets pushed out of memory all the time. Like this is the flagship, right? And I, actually, this is the 6 Plus. I don't have the 6S Plus or 6 Plus S. It's only got a gig of RAM, you know? And all I have to do is open one game like Angry Birds and then my mission-critical background application that manages my blood sugar just gets closed. Like I should be able to indicate that this is a mission-critical background application that cannot be closed. You know what I mean? So there's a couple things that can happen. iOS developers could jump in and help the open source projects, and we've got chat rooms on Gitter and stuff. But also, iOS needs to think about the difference between being a pocket supercomputer with more than one use. It's not just for Facebook and pictures of cats, right? It could potentially be a bridge for medical devices, but you have to have a way to say, this is a privileged process that cannot be closed, or, or if it does get closed, it gets restarted. I have to open this app a half dozen times a day to make sure it doesn't get ejected from memory. Oh, that's really interesting. It's not something I had thought about. I hope Apple seems pretty focused on health and medical applications for iOS. They've got Research Kit and Care Kit, which are open source projects that they've yeah. done. I mean, I, they, I disagree. They came out and they talk about Health Kit, but other than turning on all of the switches and sending stuff up to Health Kit, what have you done with it since then? Is, well, is there a website I can log into to see all my health data? So at least publicly, they claim to care about it, but it sounds like there's still quite a bit of room to grow. I, I don't know. I agree. I'm asking you. Where do I log into HealthKit and see all of my personal data? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, uh, yeah as far as I know, it's on your, on phone, your device. But that's it. And yeah, I've kind of dealt with the same thing. It's like, okay, well, I entered this information into some app and it sent the information back to HealthKit. But if I'm not on my iPhone or iPad, 
I don't really have a good way of evaluating how well I'm doing. Right. I don't see like a really clear API for me to go and look at this stuff. And even now, if I open up the health application, I see steps and I see some from weird looking orange charts, but I only only get bar charts. Let's go to health data, vitals. I'm looking for I'm looking for glucose. Here we go. Blood glucose show on dashboard. So I went to blood glucose show on dashboard and I went over to the dashboard. If I remember correctly, this is not meant for real time. So it's six hours late. So I see my or three hours late. I see my blood sugar from eight this morning and I see a fairly simplistic chart showing my blood sugar in a range and an option to show it on the dashboard. And if I click show all data, I literally just get a list box. You know what I mean? So it's a secure storage for my blood sugar, but that's about it. Like what else can I do with this? So the thing that I'm wondering then is, is there a way forward from here? I mean, you know, you're kind of hacking together something with a Raspberry Pi. You know, you and I, we could probably muddle our way through that. I mean, I think I could pick up enough Python to write a script similar to yours. Um, well, it's not mine, to be clear. The OpenAPS project is a whole bunch of people, and it's not okay. It's not just a script. It's a non-trivial amount of work. Okay. But it's just data, right? It's right. just lists of data, computations. It's JSON. You know, okay. I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to simplify it, but at the same time, it's not rocket surgery. Right. All, all I'm saying is, is that even if I wanted to do it myself, I could have it pull in data, munch data, and send data back up. And right. if so there's that's, more to it than that, then terrific. Every diabetic, when they become diabetic, if they are also an engineer, the first thing they want to do is figure out how to get their data out. That's yeah. like the standard thing. About 25 years ago, first thing I did was hook up a serial port, do a bunch of hacking, wrote some code, made a CSV file, and stuck it into Excel. That's yeah. like the classic. But night, you're, you know, like, I just got diagnosed diabetic. What's going to happen? I'm going to die. Let me see if I can solve this with Excel. Mm-hmm. Everyone does that. This is just... Yeah, and the then I gave up and said there's got to be a better way. Yeah. What they're doing now, what folks like John Costick and Benjamin West and Dana and Scott and Jason Calabrese are all doing, which is plugging all these different Lego pieces together and trying to figure out... And there's like six different ways to do this, you know? Like, I'm using this thing called a CareLink stick to talk to the pump, but there's like a TI USB stick and someone's trying that. I'm going to put together a Raspberry Pi system that's probably going to be about the size of, you know, probably a good fat hand. It's not small, but there are also people who've got them shoved into a um, a Tic Tac box because they know more about electronics. And they're like, well, I don't really need this. I don't need that. I don't need this. I can get away without the Wi-Fi. I can get away without the keyboard. You know, I have a better way to do the back. I have to figure out how to power this thing by a battery. I haven't figured that part out yet, you know. So there's there's all sorts of interesting work where people are scouring sites like SparkFun and Adafruit. There's a lot of really promising work happening right now with the Intel Edison, which is a very low-power device. So my battery can run the Raspberry Pi for six hours or the Intel Edison for 30. So, you know, things like that. There's lots of work to be done, but it all comes down to how hard it is to get the data out of these different devices. Every pump is different. Every CGM is different. So do you see this getting to the point where there are going to be options that you don't have to engineer yourself within the next 5, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I do. The one that I think is the most promising right now is a company called Bigfoot Biomedical. They have a working, fully functional, automated closed-loop system, and then they're working right now to bring that to uh, to market. And that's uh, Lane Desborough is a hacker who kind of worked on Night Scout and has now gone off and done this. And he used to be the chief engineer at Medtronic, which is the the pump manufacturer. And most of these people are driven by either diabetes themselves or uh, their kids are diabetic. And if a kid becomes diabetic, 
people really jump in. That's when you dedicate your life to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, and there are two reasons for that. One is obviously you care about your kids. But the other thing is is managing the diabetes. I mean, you're training your kids to do it, but ultimately, at least for a while, most of the parents that I know that have type 1 diabetic kids, you know, under around the age of 10, they wind up managing a lot of it until they can kind of take responsibility for it themselves. Yeah, well, there's, there's a morbid, not a morbid joke, but a joke. It's like there's three kinds of diabetics, type 1, type 2, and then the parents. Well, the other thing is, is that, I mean, the consequences you've, you've kind of pointed out, but my dad is about 25 years further down the road than I am with this. And, you know, he's lost three or four toes. He's had his kidneys give out on him. He's on dialysis right now, actually. I'm sorry to um, hear that. You know, he's got arthritis that a lot of that stems from the diabetes. And as far as I knew, he was managing it, but apparently uh, not well enough. So, yeah, that that is really unfortunate to hear. And when we hear stories like that, it's difficult to decide what to do. But honestly, you need to check your blood sugar. Yeah, the only thing that I can do at this point, I mean, I drive him to dialysis periodically when my mom can't. But right, but this the, is the only thing I can about, do like, is take care of me. This is going. This is going back in time. Yeah, twenty years ago, like you kind of figured he was managing it, and then it turns out tragically he was not. But you didn't find out till twenty years too late. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's not so, twenty-two years. It's not twenty years too late for me. Exactly. So your A1C needs to be under six. Yep. And that's that's what I'm working on now. And it, it's kind of become the the major focus this year is my health. But yep. you know, I never got into the habit of checking my blood sugar, and so I haven't worried about it since then. But now that you mention it, and it's funny how like you don't think of these things on your own, but when somebody brings it up and it's like, that's so obvious. So for me, it's, oh, well, if I'm going to manage this, I need to measure it. Yep. So you talked about some frustrations with access to data. I'd like to talk a little bit about the day-to-day experience of wearing these devices. And are they beeping at you all the time? Do you turn off notifications? Like, what is the right way to notify? And how do you know if you're doing too much? Because a developer will just send up a notification, a push notification for everything. Anything else? Um, so there's all sorts of configurable notifications. So, for example, every notification is snoozable. So if I get a high, a high blood sugar, I can say, I can click OK and say, all right, cool, I got it. Don't bother me for 15 minutes. That's like an implied snooze by hitting OK. But if it's a low, which is more urgent, which is more you're going to die, then you might only have five minutes of snoozing. Because it's going and it's going to be it's going to become more insistent, and then there's lows, and then there's urgent lows where it's not going to shut up no matter what you do. So it's all contextual. Do these work this way out of the box? Did you have to figure yep. this out yourself? No, it all works out of that way out of the box. You can tweak it any way that you want. It is more prescriptive than an iPhone, for example. I was sitting next to someone on a bus recently and showed them that an iPhone had quiet hours. They had no idea, and they were freaking out. They were like, "Game changer." Like, I can tell the iPhone to be quiet from 11 p.m. until, you know, 8 a.m. Like, that's amazing. I just turn it off. And I said, yeah. And also, if someone who's in your favorites calls you, it will ignore quiet hours. And if someone who isn't in your favorites calls you twice within two minutes, it will ignore your, your quiet hours. And they're like, that's so thoughtful. But you have to turn it on, right? With blood sugar stuff, there is uh, some important stuff. Your blood sugar is 50. You need to know about it. So that is on by default. So if we switch this to kind of the iPhone, would you keep all of that the, level all of, of those, Yeah, all of those things apply to the iPhone version of this software. Okay, so this, is, this isn't the actual device itself. This is the how it communicates with the device. 
the device, the, okay, so the, the, there's three different devices. There's the transmitter. That's the one that's in my arm. And then there are one or more receivers where a receiver might be a physical device, like this one I'm holding in my hand. It looks like an iPod Nano. Or it might be a, uh, a an iPhone, which is also acting as a receiver. They all have very stringent, the Dexcom has a very stringent alerting system that's very flexible that can, you know, bother you when you need to be bothered and leave you alone when you when you don't want to be bothered. Well, it's good that they've been able to get this working out of the box in a way that's not mm-hmm. terribly invasive. So that's that's good for them. Many, many apps oh, yeah. do not. I mean, the Dexcom by itself is 90% of what people need. I just think it's the ability for, and then also even the ability to have like your loved ones see your blood sugar remotely, the Dexcom supports that. So there's a there's an iPhone app for following a diabetic. There's the app the diabetic runs that pushes it into the cloud and then there's the follower app and you can basically subscribe to that person's blood sugar and have like five people subscribing to your blood sugar remotely. Okay, and that works. That works. And that now. all works. That all works today, works just fine. Things that don't work perfectly are like the Apple Watch has a an Apple Watch complication. Complications have limits on how often a complication can be pushed to the Apple Watch. Uh, you can't push a complication every five minutes for 24 hours a day because of battery life issues. There's a limit. But for a diabetic, I need all those numbers. So what do you do? Do you show me a range? Do you push it every 15 minutes? Well, if you push it every 15 minutes, did I miss one? It gets complicated quickly. So other than complications, you know, improving battery life on watches and being able to update. Run in the background. Remember in I said background? it needs to run in the background. I think larger than iOS, phones need a hypervisor and a medical device background process running on your personal area network. There's no software for that right now, is there? Right. And when I mean a hypervisor, I mean I mean seriously like a ring zero process that need that is mission critical. I don't think that the industry is ready yet to do something like that, to have the iPhone be the crux of you know the, the hub of all things medical as it for a diabetic. But it happens to be the only pocket supercomputer I have with a big old screen and a big old battery, and it's the, my freaking back pocket. How stupid is it that I am here cobbling together a 3D printed Raspberry Pi with a big old battery and a wireless adapter, and I'm going to shove it into my back pocket and pretend that it's an iPhone, when I have a perfectly good iPhone right here, it is only the limitation of the hardware and the software on the iPhone that is preventing me from just, you know, or really there's mostly software limitation that's preventing me from doing that. It's not an open connector, right? The lightning connector is not open. I can't pair any old thing to it. I need Bluetooth profiles. I can't plug in USB stuff arbitrarily to it. So I don't know. I think we'll end up with a Tic Tac sized Raspberry Pi Zero version of this hacked together with a TI USB stick and a Bluetooth, and at some point come up with a roughly playing card, you know, size of a deck of cards system. But I still think it's stupid that I'm having to do this because the iPhone is not willing to give up some of its processor power. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, they do it because of battery life, and Apple's been very protective of battery life. But if we're talking about health information, yeah, you know, know what, that, what but, do you get but, but somehow they feel the need to have, you know, kinetic wallpapers on the home screen that move as you gyro the thing in front of your face, you know, and the and juicy, uh, cool animations and stuff as you open, you know, like, like if they really cared about battery life, I don't know. This is not just an app. I'm not just yelling at Apple here. It's all phones. You know what I mean? Like really, I'm not an Android fan by any means, but Android is the only kind of like portable open ish pocket supercomputer that you can really do anything you want to with. Yeah, the other thing to keep, or as far as battery life goes, is I keep hearing that they're trying to ma- or weigh battery life against like how 
thick the phone is or how it's shaped, but how many people that have this kind of mission-critical problem would be willing to deal with a little bit thicker phone to get a little bit more battery life and then just have this run all the time? I would propose have it run all the time, and I'll just plug it into a big old battery. You know, my car is a backup battery for this phone. I'm totally fine with <laughs> with, eight, with eight hour battery life, but I just don't want to keep carrying other devices around with me. Yeah, you know, they, we call these rigs. There's like a Night Scout rig or an Open APS rig, and there's all sorts of 3D printed ways of here. I got another one. Hang on. You know, different boxes that are with, with all sorts of different vents and screw heads and just different ways to put together these things. But they all come out big. You know what I mean? Like that's bigger than my palm, quite a bit bigger than my palm. You can't put that in an eight-year-old kid's backpack and say, here you go. Not to mention there's not a lot of ubiquitous cellular. That's the other inconvenience. There's a couple of devices. I think the photon particle or someone had a, a cellular device or an Internet of Things that had cellular plugged into it. Here, where is it? It is a, yes, particle.io, the Electron 3G kit. Basically, you can do tiny little 3G kind of deals. It has a built-in 3G card, but it only has 128K of RAM, and it costs two ninety nine a month for one megabyte. So $2.99. Oh. Cents a month, but the issue is that you know over the course of an entire month, sending all of your blood sugar up and down, it's going to be about 250 megs, right? So it's 99 cents for each additional megabyte. So that's not really a solution. That's like 250, 300 dollars a month. Now for the kinds of stuff that this is meant for, it's a tiny development kit. And if I'm going to send text messages or the occasional hourly temperature reading, that's one thing. But you know, blood sugar over time, every five minutes adds up. You know what I mean? There's no good, tiny, convenient way to send that to the cloud other than the phone that I'm already using that has 15 gigs. Like one YouTube video is all my blood sugar data for months. Wow. I hope I'm not coming off as too bitter. I'm just trying to point out that there's a, if you go on Google for the sad state of diabetes technology, I wrote a blog post in 2012 where I kind of lamented this. And, you know, there's amazing stuff going on, but this could all be solved if the manufacturers would just try harder. If they talk to each other. Well, but see, none, they're all struggling to stay in business, right? Like, it's as profitable as we are, though. They also want to keep us safe, and I need to give them respect for that. But uh, I'll tell you this. As a diabetic for 25 years, being told that it's going to be cured every five years, five more years. They've been telling me that for 25 years. And they've been telling diabetics I know for 50 years. We're not five years away. I don't know, what, you know what's going to happen in five years. Hopefully... A tiny pager-like device I throw in my pocket from someone like Bigfoot Biomedical that lets me uh, just close the loop and not think about it anymore. That would be lovely. Definitely. That's the, that's the goal we'd all like to see. I think you're right, and I think it, it's really interesting. I'm a little bit pressed for time, so I'm going to go ahead and push us into picks. Is there anything you want to kind of end with, though, Scott, before we go there? Even though I'm kind of crotchety and complaining right now, it does suck less than it did in the early 90s. <laughs> and, right. and at the same time i also want to point out that it is a heroic group of people who have the patience of job to go and put these things together there are a, a whole community of people i've only named a dozen that are working tirelessly to do it and i think the interesting part of open aps uh, as an example isn't the uh, aps part but the open part they could have gone off and made a company and tried to make bajillions of dollars but uh, they're giving it all out to the people. It's a very guerrilla project. It's definitely not something that you could get set up in an hour, but it definitely will teach you more about your own blood sugar and your own um, body, and it's worth at least poking around. If you don't close the loop, you can at least have uh, really tight monitoring of your blood sugar. 
All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Andrew, what are your picks? Sure. I've just got one pick today. Uh, and my pick is reading papers. So that may sound a little weird. I got an iPad Pro last week uh, and really like it. And of course, the first thing anybody I think who gets an iPad Pro or even tries one, it does is it gets the Apple Pencil and starts drawing and sketching things. And that was fun. And then I wondered what what it would take to do sort of a, I don't know, p- sketch pattern recognition like you see in Adobe has a new app for doing really quick sort of wireframes and you draw a circle and it turns it into a, a real vector circle in, in the app. So I wondered what it would take to do that and couldn't really search around on GitHub, which is sort of sort of my normal first instinct, couldn't really find anything good and ended up finding some academic papers on the subject. Turns out there are whole sort of laboratories at various universities that work on this problem. It's an area of active research and you can go read a lot of papers and despite not knowing anything about this beforehand, papers are actually quite digestible. You can figure out what they're talking about without too much trouble. And a lot of them actually have code examples or at least pseudo code examples for algorithms and stuff. So I went from not knowing anything to actually playing around writing some code based on these papers pretty quickly. And it was a cool thing. So don't be afraid to dive into you know academic work on something you're interested in. That's my pick. All right, Jane, what are your picks? All right, I, I got a couple of picks. I should mention my wife, who is also a type 1 diabetic or type, has type 1 diabetes. She's had it for 29 years, and she's been writing over the past four years about her living with diabetes and other autoimmune uh, diseases. Um, her blog is called Diabetes Light, My Holistic Journey to Health, and she talks about living with it, but also uh, using different ways to treat it. Um, you know, large things that people do with is diet and one thing we do as a, as a family is like we eat pretty healthy. We buy our own vegetables and we eat a, a pretty clean diet and that helps us keep the blood sugars in control and, you know, hopefully stave off the, the complications that it can happen, especially after living it, with, living it with it for decades. So I'll put a couple links into the show notes. Um, she has a blog page and she's got a Facebook group, which she's more active on, but it's good stuff. Second pick as many of you know, I'm from Minneapolis, and we lost one of our, our great artists uh, this week. Scott, I know you're a fan, but Prince passed away six days ago, and that's been my entire Facebook feed for the past week. And it's, even today, like six days later, it's still 80% Prince of people sharing things. There's been a lot of stuff written. I just wanted to point out a couple articles. One article I read maybe a year or two ago is with uh, Jimmy Jam, who was one of the people who kind of came out of the Minneapolis scene after Prince. And he was part of the time and got fired from the time and produced a ton of records in the 80s and just gave an overview of kind of his early experiences with Prince and how Prince helped you know, the time get uh, the record deal and stuff like that. So it's a good article. BuzzFeed aggreg- aggregated a bunch of articles from you know the past 30 years, 35 years uh, about Prince. So those are good reading if you're interested in kind of Prince, Prince type stuff. So those are my picks. All right. I've just got one pick this week. And that, well, and I guess I'm going to shout out really quickly. I'm going to be in Chicago on June 9th or July 9th. Sorry. So if you want to come hang out, we're working out where we're going to do that right now. It'll be somewhere near the Hyatt Regency Hotel since I'm going to podcast movement. So check that out. I'll be putting out more information when I have it, which is probably the next episode of the show. The other pick I have is for type 2 diabetics. I do give myself shots with insulin twice a day. And, you know, I'm taking some other medications and working on getting stuff under control. But one thing that's really been helping me is just uh, managing my diet. And the way that they teach type 2 diabetics to manage their blood sugar is through counting carbs, which is really hard for me to do. It's like, oh, okay, so how many carbs are in this meal? And heck, I don't know. And, you know, you ask the restaurant how much rice you ate, and they don't know. And 
Anyway, what I found in general is uh, instead working off of an eating lifestyle that sort of tells you eat this and don't eat that. And then just follow that. And then when you do decide, okay, well, it's a holiday, and so I'm going to eat as much stuffing as I want at Thanksgiving, then it doesn't kill you off for that one day. And so uh, the program that I've been following is the Primal Blueprint. You can find a whole bunch of information about that. There's the book by Mark Sisson, and they have some cookbooks and other stuff you can check out. Uh, I guess in general my pick is that uh, Mark's Daily Apple is where uh, Mark puts up all the information about Primal Blueprint eating and there's also uh, a certain way to exercise and things like that that they recommend. Obviously, you can tailor that if you're doing more like marathons and endurance training to work more carbs in. But then it's strategic to make sure you have the energy to do the exercise and not just because it tastes good or because you want whatever. And I found that it's hard to get started, but then there are a lot of options once you kind of figure out what you can and can't do. So I'm going to recommend that for folks uh, like me who are dealing with maybe some insulin resistance and things like that, where you just eat a diet that's a little lower in carbs and a little higher in high-quality food. Scott, what are your picks? To the point of Prince, if you go to medium.com slash at S. Hanselman, or you go to my blog, um, a good friend of mine interviewed Prince and spent time with him in 1999 for a profile in InStyle magazine, and uh, both she and Prince are gone. Uh, and I found an email from her many, many years ago where she sent me a unedited AOL chat room that she had had one-on-one with Prince uh, in a private chat. And uh, it's an interesting insight into the man and uh, also a reminder that Internet chats from a rock star uh, look like Internet chat from anybody. I think Prince actually invented uh, Internet chat lingo. The two and the <laughs> It's very possible. You. I think he it was, was ahead, him. definitely ahead of his time. Sprint speak is how is what I call it. Mm. Awesome. Are there any other things that you're working on right now, Scott, that you want to shout out about or, you know, your Twitter handle or anything like that? So oh, people yeah, follow just, you? yeah, follow me on Twitter. Google for Scott or Scott Hanselman. You'll find me. Hanselman.com leads to my podcasts, my blog, my Twitter, uh, Facebook, and all things. All right. Sounds great. Well, thank you for coming, Scott. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up and we'll catch everyone in a week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.